Good morning, and welcome to another episode of Crime Over Coffee. We're your hosts. I'm Erica. And I'm Abby. Today, we're going to tell you part one about the Southern Ohio Correctional Facility riot that happened in 1993. So pour yourselves a strong cup of joe and let's dive in. The Southern Ohio Correctional Facility is also commonly referred to as Lucasville Prison. So if you hear me say Lucasville, that's what I mean. I think that's what I tend to say when I talk about this riot. It's a maximum security prison that was constructed in 1972 in Lucasville, Ohio. It was known as one of the more violent facilities in the country. It had a lot of more of the hardcore criminals, murderers, rapists, that kind of thing. So it was a rough crowd. There was also a lot of different gang affiliations and different groups within the prison that would butt heads, which did not make for a pleasant experience. Not to mention that it was extremely overcrowded. They had cells that were 10 and a half foot by six and a half foot made for single prisoners that would be doubled up. Unfortunately, that's still stuff that we see happening today in prisons. Yeah, as you'll see in this story, a lot of it has to do with prisoners' rights and what should be happening in prisons and what's maybe not necessarily happening in prisons. The prison also had its fair share of issues leading up to the riot that occurred in 1993, There was a time in 1973, so pretty soon after it first opened, where two guards were killed. They had prisoners holding hunger strikes and inmates filing suit against the state for cruel and unusual punishment and overcrowding. There was also a case where a 32-year-old teacher at the prison, Beverly Taylor, was murdered when she went into a restroom by one of the inmates who stabbed her with a homemade knife. It had, like I said, its fair share of issues. In 1990, the prison got a new warden, Arthur Tate. He, from interviews with him, was not happy to be transferring into this prison. He basically got told by the higher-ups that that's what was going to be happening. It had a really bad reputation, and he knew it and was very nervous to be taking on this position and role. I think it takes a lot in person to be able to work in one of the maximum security prisons. Yeah, it's actually really interesting. I think it takes a very special person to work in this field. I know for a while I knew someone who just transported prisoners for like community service. And he said it was absolutely horrible. He got threats all the time. So I cannot even imagine. And you know, something I noticed too from specifically looking into this case, interviews with prison guards talking about how they feel like when they're in there, they're kind of losing some of their freedom too. It seems like a very dark, stressful place to be working every day. However, I mean, specifically for Lucasville, a lot of the prison guards work there because it was the big source of jobs in Lucasville. Lucasville had it was a pretty small town. There's not a lot going on. And they, in comes this prison, which offers a bunch of jobs and benefits. So, a lot of people look to that for their source of income. Yeah, I had uh, in college a bunch of criminal justice professors who had previously worked in prisons and then had switched to becoming a professor. 
And they all had tons of horror stories of being attacked repeatedly or even working in the juvenile detention centers. And they talked about how hard it was to work there. And they also always were able, they were able to share stories of other guards and people who had been attacked while working in the prison. And it just, it's a lot of people and they don't have a lot of the right measures in place to make sure everybody's being protected. I don't know what else they could do, like what all needs done though. So I'm kind of excited to hear this whole story. So before Arthur Tate comes in, like I said, the prison was kind of a mess. They were really lax on rules. Inmates talked about how bad it was and they almost had too much freedom because there was just not enough control happening. So here comes Arthur Tate and he decides we need some changes. So he starts enforcing rules and he's being stricter. And something that came into issue was putting inmates in same cells that are part of these different groups or gangs or whatever you want to call them. They had a pretty distinct Muslim group. Uh, The Aryan Brotherhood was in there and the Black Gangster Disciples and all very different beliefs and they did not mesh. I think that that was a good move of the warden to do. I think that that's probably some things that should have been. First off, they're not even supposed to be sharing cells. They're supposed to each have their individual one, you said, right? Mm -hmm. So, but if you're going to stick two people in a tiny room together, they should at least be able to get along. No, he mixed them. Oh, you said he mixed them. Yeah, he mixed them, which is caused... Which caused a ton of racial tension. I thought tension. you were saying he went in there and moved no. them. He was, he, I think, was over the attack because there would be attacks on each other and he was like trying to put an end to it. So he actually mixed people from different gangs and it caused a lot of issues. So what was his goal? For them just to take each other out so that there were less people in the prison? I don't think he had any malice in it. I think he really was just trying to get some more control over the inmates and not just giving them what they wanted. From them talking, the interviews with inmates, it was very, like I said, free and lax, and they kind of made their own rules almost to a sense. So Arthur Tate, the warden, was really trying to like lay down the hammer and say, you guys are inmates, you're prisoners, you don't get to dictate how this is going to go. There were also apparently a lot of instances where Arthur would encourage inmates giving dirt or quote-unquote snitching on other inmates. There was some talk about prisoners not being able to open their windows and there being poor air circulation in the prison. Some prisoners, I guess, were only permitted one five-minute phone call a year. And they're talking about having to march to meals in a certain formation. It was just a lot of tension building. So these are all things that you're saying the warden came in, he put all of these in place. Yeah, he's starting to implement more rules. He's trying to be strict. He's From how he talks and like reading some of them, he just kind of seems like he was doing what he could with the situation he had. So I agree that there needs to be some rules and it shouldn't be lax, but... I don't agree with the way that he went about it. Yeah, it's very messy. And, you know, all these prisoners were accustomed to acting a certain way for so long. And then he comes in and is like, heck no, we're not doing it this way. And, you know, a lot of times people in prison probably aren't ones to just like roll over and not say anything. And that's not everyone, obviously. Some probably were just trying to get their time done, but... You don't have that a lot, especially since it was a maximum security. You had people in there for life. There was a death row. You know, when you feel like you've got nothing to lose, I feel like it pushes you to go against the grain. The mystery has been solved. 
Here at Crime Over Coffee, our go-to caffeinated beverage for every episode is Fire Department Coffee. And you can get some as well and save 15% with our exclusive coupon code CRIMEPOD15. Owned and operated by firefighters and veterans, 10% of all their proceeds go directly to helping sick and injured first responders. And with an incredible range of flavors and caffeine strength, it's a company that all of us can easily support. So please go to firedeptcoffee.com and use our coupon code CRIMEPOD15 to support us, support them, help first responders, and get some incredibly tasty coffee along the way. What really set some people over the edge was... Arthur started to implement tuberculosis testing. We was going to do that and make sure it wasn't spreading, which, you know, great. That's probably a good thing to have some type of disease control. However, he was going to test every prisoner and the Muslims in there did not want to take the test because the test had fennel in it, which some forms of Muslim religion forbid any type of alcohol passing through the body And they would say phenol is a type of alcohol. So they did not want to take that test because it was against their religion and their beliefs. Which is a big thing. I know that there are a lot of different religions out there and some of them don't even allow like any medical procedures to be done at Mm -hmm. all. And that could be seen as a medical procedure. I will be honest. I don't know in depth about the Muslim religion or culture, but if that's what their belief is and if that's their culture, then I feel like you can't do that. them even if they are a prisoner because even as a prisoner you have rights yes you're supposed to (laughs) but (laughs) you're right i I think you could see where this story is going you're talking about how awful this place has been so yeah so the plan was because there was so much flare-up in response to the tb tests that were going to be going around arthur's plan was right after easter the day after easter they were going to lock down the prison and they weren't going to have their normal day-to-day activities and they were going to have teams that would go to each cell and test the prisoners in their cell so there wasn't any movement it you know decreased the risk of attacks or getting overpowered by a lot of prisoners reacting and word just got around of it you know people talking about it prisoners overhearing and some of the muslim group in the prison heard about this and decided no we're not we're standing up against this we're going to do something and so on easter sunday which i do think it's interesting i was watching a documentary on this riot and one of the inmates talked about how they picked easter specifically because they knew that one of the reasons was that arthur would be home with his family and they wanted to ruin that day for him and also they knew that there, there's a chance there'd be less guards because they would take off for Easter. But they decide Easter is when they're going to make their stand. I feel two ways about that. <laughs> One, savage. Two, smart. Yeah, the putting enough thought into it to say there's probably going to be less guards because everyone's taking off for Easter. That, you know, it's not something I probably would have even thought about, but it makes sense. It do- and they're like, you know what? We really don't like this warden, so we're just going to do it on a day that we know he won't be here so that he has to come in. They just want to, like, screw him over. Yeah. It's like, they're going to do it anyway, but if they can get this extra jab at him, they're for sure going to take it. And I do want to say, too, like, I watched a documentary and I've read articles with Arthur. He seems like a genuinely good guy. I don't think he was, like, purposely trying to abuse anyone. I think he was in a hard situation. He was just trying to navigate yeah. where he was dealt, right? Yeah. So, like, I don't want to paint him too much as, like, he came in and was being, like, abusive. Because I don't know that that's the case. But the things that were happening already in the prison, I just think it was a bad situation overall. 
Well, and it's hard in situations like that to know exactly what the correct method to do is. It's got it's always going to be a lot of trial and error for anybody who's given a position of authority. They don't nobody knows exactly what to do. And you know something that makes this riot specifically really well known is some aggravation towards the state after everything plays out, which we'll obviously get to. So during an exercise recreational period, some inmates were outside and had already talked to people who were in charge of supplies and ended up handing out something like 20 to 25 bats, baseball bats, to inmates, which I'm surprised. From what I could tell, they weren't supposed to have them, but I'm surprised they were even there. I'm trying to figure out what the bats were there for. It, maybe I was trying to think, do they, were this, was it for like recreational activities where they were playing baseball? It was in like the recreational exercise field. So I assume that's what they were for. I don't know that they actually were able to have access to them. Typically, I would I would assume maybe like if they want, they maybe had like batting cages where like one person could go in and you lock the gate and they can, there's no other inmates and maybe they hit. That's just a guess. I think it was probably something along those lines where it was used in a safer way, but I, I don't know. I mean, I know, I guess I don't 100% know about baseball bats, but I know like some prisons, they, if you want to play basketball, you have to take your in, you use your inmate number to kind of rent out the basketball yeah. and then they know who has the balls. So I'm assuming it was maybe similar to the bats typically, but somehow they just found access to them in a weird way. Somehow the inmates who were in charge of, say, renting out this stuff gathered a bunch of them and just literally gave them to them because they were for the riot. They were all kind of wanted this to happen. So the inmates with the bats come running through and start attacking the prison guards and officers in the area and basically all hell breaks loose within like minutes everything's getting taken over they ended up getting keys from one of the officers they attacked and opened up a bunch of cells and this is all happening in l block of the prison it's a pretty big prison but the riot per se happened specifically in l block so naturally alarms go off the warden gets a phone call ruining his easter (laughs) And police officials and everyone comes to the prison to see what they can do. But it happens so fast and so heavy, I guess, that there wasn't a lot to be done. Inmates, like I said, all the doors ended up getting unlocked. They were just destroying stuff. They took the prison guards hostage. They started beating the crap out of quote unquote snitches. Snitches get stitches. Yeah, that definitely rang true in this situation. By the way, guys, that's not what I actually believe. That's just the phrase that always gets used. So anytime Abby's talking about snitches, that's the only thing that's coming to my head. So actually, in one of the interviews I was watching, it was an inmate who was part of this. And he's talking about one of the guys, the inmates, the snitches, quote unquote, who gets attacked. And he literally is saying, oh, he was a snitch. He should have got killed a long time ago. Just like so nonchalant. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> yeah, that's um how they felt. And you know, like I said, there was all these racial tensions and different gangs kind of attacking each other. And it was bad. They were setting fires, like burning their files so they wouldn't have their files when it's all said and done. And they broke a bunch of stuff. At the end of it, there was something like... $40 million in damage done to this prison, which, mind you, is a fairly new prison. It had only been there about 20 years. It's crazy. But you can tell how much planning that they put into it. They they'd really thought about it and had done a lot of preparation. So within the first couple hours, they have eight guards they're holding hostage. From some of the testimonies, 
and recounts it sounded like they kept the guards pretty separate one or two guards with different groups of people so that they were never all together (laughs) and they actually within l block different gangs and groups went to their separate areas so like up here we have the black gangster disciples over here is the aryan brotherhood like they segregated within their riot which i thought was interesting something else too that i don't think is something i even thought about when researching this is how many inmates weren't involved with it and didn't want to be a part of it and were just scared shitless basically Um, I'm sure that there were a few of those, at least. Oh, yeah. Within this block in the situation, there were about 400 to 450 inmates who were, I don't want to say involved with the riot because they weren't all firsthand in it, but involved in the sense that they were in this area and they were part of it, whether they wanted to be or not. And that would suck. Like, say you're in there, you're, you know, I just always think about like prisoners who like go in, they're just trying to get their time done. They don't do anything bad when they're in prison you know what I mean and then all of a sudden you're in the middle of this chaos where people are getting murdered violently mind you like the autopsies of the inmates that got killed were horrible like it was rough it was rough to read but it seems like such a scary situation to be in not to even I mean we're not even brushing on the guards being held hostage by them like that's horrifying on a whole new level I think Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Right away, they set up a perimeter. There's all kinds of different agencies outside the prison. They immediately cut off electricity and water to that block. Something I found out actually today when I was like touching up on this before we started. For part of the riot, like the beginning of it, the prison adjacent to L Block where the riot's happening still had prisoners and was still functioning. Later on, a couple days into it, at some point, they start transporting some of those prisoners because they started acting up in response but I thought that was something that's interesting that you don't think about with riots and stuff and because prisons are huge I don't think a lot of people realize how big they can be do you really need to like shut down the whole other part and try to transport them all out when you have something going on in one area of it probably not as long as you can keep them under control but once word spreads that Mm -hmm. this block did it then you know a b all the other blocks are going to be like well now we can try yeah there was a block i think it was a k block or something that they inmates in their cells started like basically destroying their cells they used tear gas to like neutralize the situation and then would bring buses to ship inmates out to their areas for a while Anyway, like I said, they cut off electricity and water. Their plan was to shut off their resources and wait it out. You know, they've got to eat. They've got to shower. They've got to bathe. The inmates that is at some point. They can't just stay in there with no food or water. Like, it's not going to work. You'll die. So they were hoping to draw them out and cut off their resources. It sounds like a great idea from what you've told me, though, so far. I Like I said, they did a lot of preparation. So part of me wonders if they kind of prepared for that or had a backup plan for if the prison tried to stop them um i don't know that they had a follow-up plan necessarily i will say that there was 
a manual on what to do if there's a riot that happened to be in one of the L block offices that the prisoners had access to and were able to read and see the steps that the officials were going to be taking. That didn't help them. That's the best spot to put it. What the prisoners wanted, the inmates per the riot, was they wanted to talk to the media. They wanted to tell the media about the conditions they were living in, in the prison. They wanted to talk about how they felt like they needed more rights. And they wanted to basically get their side of the story out there. Those officials in charge of this situation weren't going to let that happen. They were very hush-hush with the media. For the beginning of the riot, at least, they weren't giving really any information. At some point within the first couple days, a couple inmates start just carrying out bodies and dropping them out into the yard of prisoners that had died. There's a point where they bring out five or six bodies in a row. Was that mainly just to get the attention of the press? I'm not sure. I'm not sure if it was to make a statement or maybe, you know, like it was other prisoners trying to give the people who got murdered respect by like bringing their bodies out of the situation instead of just laying there. I'm not sure if there was any motive behind it or, you know, maybe on a more disgusting level, they didn't want to smell the dead bodies. I'm not sure. So there are a couple inmates when you research this that pop up a lot. One being George Skates. He was one of the leaders of the Aryan Brotherhood that were inside and he kind of decides to be the spokesperson, I guess, for the riot. So he comes out into the yard with a megaphone and demands to talk to somebody in charge and says, if you shoot us, he had some other inmates with him, if you shoot us, something's going to happen to the hostages inside, meaning the prison guards that they had hostage. They had eight of them. I forgot about the prison guards being held hostage. Yes. So, you know, they yell down, they figure out who it is, and they are like, skates, call this number so we can talk and set up negotiations. So they have a negotiator come in and then something researching this I thought was interesting. They don't have somebody who's well-known or actually in charge be the negotiator because they want someone lower down who can say, I've talked to my boss because it buys them time. Because really the goal here was to just stall it out as much as they could. So Skates is talking to a negotiator and saying that they have these 21 demands that they came up with. Things to happen if they were to surrender. It was a range of things. Some of them were like, I want to know we're not going to get in trouble after this. Like, you can't do that. You know, <laughs> that's not how it works. And then there were just some with better conditions. They wanted to talk to the media. Skates specifically says, if you let me talk to the media, we will give you two hostages. And we also want you to turn the water and lights back on. And they're like, mm, no, <laughs> they're like, well, you know, we'll let you talk to the media. You have to give us hostages. Maybe we'll send in some like care packages, which is what ends up happening. Mind you, this is everywhere at this point. So they have all these different agencies. The National Guard comes in and there's not housing for them. So they're staying in like nearby barns, which it's, it was kind of like in the middle of nowhere, Ohio, Midwest. For those of you who don't know, there were probably quite a few barns for them to stay in nearby. <laughs> probably a lot. I mean, there are families of the hostages who gathered at a school that was nearby to the prison and were waiting there to hear any news, find anything out. Something else that comes up, interestingly, in the interviews with the inmates involved in this is that they 
said specifically this is not a race thing this is not like a separation thing this is us against the establishment he was like you know when everything broke out we had our issues and people died but we kind of collectively came together to deal with what we wanted to i mean i guess that's kind of a good thing that came out of it is they were all able to work together Mm -hmm. in a terrible way but so everything like i said is stalling about three days in they haven't had a talk with the news media quite yet and where they're going to release a hostage. But about three days in, they start hanging sheets out the windows saying, you know, there's one specifically that says you have three and a half hours to meet our demands or one hostage dies. This is where things take a turn. Stay tuned for next week's episode where we complete our story about the Southern Ohio Correctional Facility riot. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Crime Over Coffee. You can find us on Instagram at Crime Over Coffee or on Facebook at Crime Over Coffee Podcast, where all of our photo and video content for each episode can be found. You can also email us your thoughts and case suggestions at crimeovercoffeepod at outlook.com. Also, all of our sources can be found in the show notes of each episode. If you would like, you can support us by going to anchor.fm slash crimeovercoffee. Donations are greatly appreciated and assist in making the podcast possible. Other ways to support us include recommending us to friends and family, giving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, and subscribing to us on your favorite podcast listening medium. So again, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.